Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q&Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Friday the 22nd of January 2021. News. BBC spends more than £1 million to fight claims of pay discrimination by women and BAME staff. This article is by Hannah Roger. The BBC has spent more than £1 million on legal fees to fight equal pay issues with women and BAME staff. The details have emerged following an exchange between an SNP MP and the broadcaster's new Director-General Tim Davey during a Westminster committee hearing last year. John Nicholson, MP for Ockall in South Perthshire and a former BBC journalist himself, asked during the House of Commons Digital Culture, Media and Sports committee hearing last September how much money had been spent defending claims by staff. However, Mr Davey said he did not have the figures. The broadcaster has provided the information to the committee today, but angered committee chairman Julian Knight MP by saying they had to divert resources to obtain the details. In a letter addressed to the committee, dated the 20th of January 2021, the BBC disclosed it had been billed £1,121,652 by external lawyers for 2,688 hours averaging more than £417 per hour, fighting equal pay and race discrimination cases. This does not include the cost of ongoing disputes. In addition to the amount spent on external counsel, the BBC also admitted its in-house lawyers had spent a total number of 2,452 hours fighting allegations of equal pay and or race discrimination. During the hearing on the 29th of September last year, John Nicholson MP asked Mr Davey, how much have you spent on lawyers' fees fighting women in total? I think it's going to be a huge figure. Mr Davey responded, I don't think we've got this number. In 2017, the BBC was forced by a predecessor committee to publish the salaries of its highest earning presenters, which revealed an imbalance between the numbers of men and women at the top of their list. Newswatch presenter Samira Ahmed is among the BBC's employees who have received settlements from the corporation over unequal pay. Last year, a London employment tribunal found that Ms Ahmed should have been paid the same as fellow presenter Jeremy Vine for their work on Newswatch and Points of View respectively. The BBC had argued that the pair were not doing similar work. Broadcaster Sarah Montague confirmed in January that she had won a £400,000 settlement and an apology from the BBC over unequal treatment. Montague, who previously presented BBC Radio 4's Today programme alongside veteran journalist John Humphreys, said the deal came after a long period of stressful negotiations, which was triggered after discovering a disparity in her paying conditions.
She accepted it after being warned that a battle to try to repair the situation could run into the millions. Carrie Gracie resigned from her position as China editor in January 2018 in protest at pay inequalities. She was eventually given a full apology by the corporation and back pay. The journalist donated the money to gender equality charity the Fawcett Society to set up a fund for women who need legal advice on equal pay claims. SMP Shadow Culture Secretary Mr Nicholson MP said the revelations were a flagrant misuse of the licence fee. He said the BBC has so far splurged over a million pounds and thousands of hours fighting women and BAME staff. They've lost every single case. This is a flagrant misuse of licence payer money. It is time for the BBC to stop fighting women and minorities over equality. Julian Knight MP, chairman of the DCMS committee, said it is unbelievable that the BBC has spent more than £1 million of licence fee payers' money fighting claims brought by its own staff about equal pay and race discrimination. Money that could have gone into making programmes or alleviating licence fee costs for the over 75s has instead been used to pay the salaries of barristers and lawyers. This information was not forthcoming. It was only as a result of the DCMS committee pressing Director-General Tim Davey for an answer that the shocking size of the BBC's legal bill has been revealed. The BBC's line that it had to divert resources in order to gather the information we requested is frankly completely unacceptable and shows a disregard for public scrutiny. And this at a time when the corporation is struggling to balance its books with hundreds of journalists' jobs being cut. This disclosure sits uncomfortably against the BBC's claim that it offers value for money. It must now offer a full explanation of how legal costs were allowed to escalate to such levels. We will be calling on the newly appointed BBC chair, Richard Sharp, to investigate as a priority. This article is by Hannah Roger. The Herald, Wednesday the 27th of January 2021. News. After Bifab farce, we still have a chance to take advantage of £8 billion of offshore wind farms. This article is by Brian Wilson. Who would put more than £50 million into a high-risk enterprise and be unable to produce the business plan on which that investment was made? A philanthropist with more money than cents, or simply the Scottish Government. The business in question was Bifab, now in administration. The dismal story of how public money was squandered with hundreds of jobs lost is revealed in a diligent report produced by Holyrood's Economy, Energy and Fair Work Committee. For anyone interested in what passes for Scottish industry policy, it is worth a read. Most of the focus has been on the Fife Yards at Burnt Island and Methyl, which now await the administrator's verdict on their fate. One does not get the impression of a long queue forming. From where I sit, there is deep concern about the future of the Arnish Yard on Lewis, an orphan in the storm which became part of Bifab in 2009 and has never recovered. Phrases like Almost unbelievable ineptitude seems inadequate when reviewing the Scottish Government's handling of the Bifab saga because the conventionally unbelievable has become the currently commonplace. 
Even then, the point about the missing business plan does seem startling. As the report notes dryly, despite repeated requests and the financial loss to the public purse, neither party, i.e. the Scottish Government and the Canadian company lured into taking over by FAB in 2018, shared the pre-acquisition business plan with the committee. Did it even exist? In the bitterly contested endgame, this failure to agree on what they had agreed in 2018 finally brought the curtain down on BIFAB. The Canadians, D.F. Barnes, thought they had assurances about the Scottish Government underwriting the ability to accept an order. SNP ministers claimed they couldn't, because irony of ironies of EU rules. A QC hired by the trade unions, Lord Davidson, essentially said that this was nonsense and that a willingness to provide a guarantee would not offend against the EU state aid regime. Therefore, one is left with the perception that the Scottish Government has acted unnecessarily, precipitately. It appears to be an excess of caution. The further irony is that BIFAB went bust not because they failed to win an order, but because, finally, EDF, the French state-owned company developing an offshore wind farm in the Firth of Forth, wanted to ward them one. Not unreasonably, given BIFAB's history, they also wanted a guarantee that the work would be delivered. It was at this point that the two diametrically opposed versions of what had been agreed in 2018 came to light. That was endgame for the Canadians, who had long since reached the conclusion that they were brought to Scotland on the basis of false promises, which the Scottish Government was incapable of delivering. From my own conversations, I know how shocked the Canadians were by how they felt they had been treated. Having arrived full of good intentions, for Arnish as well as Fife, they discovered step by step the quagmire they had landed in. Once the photo opportunity for ministers with cheering workers and hard hats had passed. BIFAB has become shorthand for the epic failure to turn Scotland's renewable energy capacity into jobs, particularly since the long signalled boom in offshore wind developments began to materialise. That is gone and in the past it must remain, but are there any more encouraging prospects for the future? The bidding has now opened for the Crown Estate's Scotwind round of licences to develop even bigger offshore wind farms around our coast with a value of around £8 billion. Failure to take advantage of this will be like missing out on the Industrial Revolution because everyone in the office was too busy. Yet nothing is guaranteed. The Crown Estate have required bidders to lodge supply chain development statements with promises of local content but then adds that these will not be used in the assessment or scoring of applications, so that does not take us a great deal further. Scotland's failure to win renewables work on a serious scale is usually attributed to the reluctance of developers to award contracts here because there is always someone cheaper in China or Indonesia. That, however, is only part of the story. Most of the work could not be done here, even if the will existed. The BIFAB yards were chasing crumbs rather than loaves. If things are to change, there has to be a huge coordinated effort to ensure that the infrastructure exists and state-of-the-art yards are able to compete. This is what the past decade should have been devoted to, putting in place. 
Without it, a post-COVID recovery based on green jobs will continue to be a largely meaningless slogan rather than a credible strategy. Some of our best companies are investing to ensure they are in a position to take advantage of the Scott Wind Round and the Crown Estate last year commissioned a report on port infrastructure to identify both existing capacity and future requirements. That's a start, but there needs to be some sign of ambition, investment and coordination from government. From a Hebridean perspective, it is given that there will be huge wind developments off our coast, but the question of whether this will bring work to Arnish and prosperity for the island is still wide open. The same applies to depressed coastal communities around Scotland. This time we need a business plan, and soon. This opinion piece is by Brian Wilson. The Herald, Tuesday the 26th of January 2021. News. Bullying hit Eastern Bartonshire Council paid out £230,000 in settlements. This article is by Victoria Weldon. A Scottish council rocked by claims staff self-harmed and had suicidal thoughts due to bullying and harassment has paid out £230,000 in gagging agreements over the last five years. Figures obtained by the Herald show that 14 settlement agreements were paid out by Eastern Bartonshire Council between April 2016 and April 2020, all with controversial non-disclosure clauses in place. The data, released under Freedom of Information, also showed that there were at least 17 bullying grievances raised by staff over the same period, however none of these were upheld. It comes after the Herald revealed at the end of last year that the Scottish Government had been asked to intervene in an investigation into bullying within the Council's Social Work Department after staff lost confidence in the process. Trade Union Unison said it was now in meaningful discussions with the local authority in a bid to resolve the issue. However, further current and former employees have since contacted the Herald to raise further concerns. A group of whistleblowers claim the investigation has been shambolic and that the culture at the council is that if you raise concerns then you are classed as a problem employee. While two employees who have since left the local authority said they did so due to bullying and harassment at a senior level. One claimed that several of her co-workers also left for the same reason. The revelations have prompted further calls for an independent investigation into allegations. Scottish Green Party MSP for the West of Scotland Ross Greer said these bullying and harassment claims are serious and have been going on far too long. It's time for Eastern Bartonshire Council to appoint an independent investigator. Victims must be confident that they can tell their story without fear of being restricted or silenced. While Labour said it was unacceptable for local government workers to be subjected to bullying or harassment of any kind, particularly after the vital work they have been doing during the pandemic. Party interim leader Jackie Bailey added, the health and wellbeing of council workers is paramount and Scottish Labour supports efforts that seek proper redress for any grievances. Trade union GMB Scotland added that the settlement agreement figure showed the economic consequence of employers failing to properly address such problems. A union spokesman said it's a costly reminder for Eastern Bartonshire Council that they cannot be equivocal when it comes to the proper duty of care to its employees. 
Jerry Corns, Chief Executive of Eastern Bartonshire Council, said the Council's investigation relating to a number of issues raised within Eastern Bartonshire Health and Social Care Partnership Social Work Services continues. Our investigation is following robust Council procedures and it would be inappropriate to comment further on it at this time, except to reaffirm that the health and well-being of all our clients and employees remains paramount. Any allegations relating to employment grievances are fully investigated in accordance with our procedures and action taken as appropriate. We are unable to comment on individual employees. A Scottish Government spokesman said the Health Secretary contacted Unison and Eastern Bartonshire Council in November. We are aware both parties are working to find an agreeable solution. This article is by Victoria Weldon. The Herald, Tuesday the 26th of January 2021. News. COVID-19 vaccine myths debunked. This article is by Stephen McElkenny. More than 6.5 million people have now received their first dose of the coronavirus vaccine, but misinformation about the jab continues to spread. With jabs being administered at a rate of 250 a minute, Imams, influencers and medics have been debunking some of the most harmful content being shared. We take a look at some of the myths around the COVID-19 vaccine. Myth. Vaccines are mandatory. Fact. A video being circulated on social media claims that because COVID regulations are law, there will be mandatory vaccines, house arrest until people are vaccinated and children forced to be vaccinated. This is not true. Parliament did vote on new COVID-19 regulations on January the 6th, which introduced a new national lockdown and restricted reasons why people could leave their homes, but it did not make vaccines mandatory. Children cannot be forcibly vaccinated without parental consent. Myth. The vaccine is not halal, contains pork products. Fact. Claims that the vaccine contains gelatin have caused concern in religious communities. However, vaccine manufacturers have said the vaccine does not contain any animal ingredients and no animal-derived cells were used. The British Islamic Medical Association has recommended at-risk individuals within the Muslim community get vaccinated and the Mosque and Imam's National Advisory Board is running a campaign to encourage Muslim communities to get vaccinated. Imam Kari Azim told the PA news agency, misinformation can result in someone losing their life and it is one of the core principles of Islam that protection of life is extremely important. My message to Muslim communities is that it is our ethical obligation, moral duty to take the vaccine whenever the opportunity arises. Myth. Vaccines make you infertile. Fact, Professor Lucy Chapel, a consultant obstetrician specialising in women with medical problems in pregnancy, says it is understandable that there have been questions about the new vaccines, but said that fearful claims, which can be found online, have never been substantiated. She told PA, I can see absolutely no basis for concerns about any of the COVID-19 vaccines that are licensed in the UK and fertility. Myth. The vaccine contains part of aborted fetus. Fact. A Facebook user falsely claimed that the vaccine uses MRC5 cell lines, 
which were originally developed from research deriving lung tissue of a 14-week-old aborted Caucasian male fetus. AstraZeneca has confirmed its vaccine was not developed using MRC5 cell lines, but does use a different cell strain taken from a female fetus aborted in the 1970s. The cells are used to propagate the virus for the vaccine, but these cells do not make it into the final jab. MRC cells are also not the same cells from an aborted fetus. They are cell lines that have been grown in a laboratory from a primary cell culture originally taken from a fetus. Fact. It is true that most vaccines usually take several years to be developed. However, as Deputy Chief Medical Officer Jonathan Van Tam explained, this is usually because they are produced by companies which make an investment decision about whether to move on at each stage. He said the shackles had come off in terms of investing in the new vaccine and that governments, such as the UK, had invested hundreds of millions of pounds to try and speed it, the vaccine development, up. The standards for safety and effectiveness have not however changed due to the speed of production and testing and it is still subject to independent regulation. Myth. Didn't the regulators cut corners to test the vaccine quickly? Fact. No. The Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, MHRA, has been conducting rolling reviews of data from vaccine trials. This means rather than waiting until the end of the clinical trial, to assess the data, experts have been assessing it instead on a rolling basis during the trial, which has helped speed up the approval process. Dr June Rain, head of regulator the MHRA, said after news of Pfizer's approval, that doesn't mean that any corners have been cut, none at all. Myth, you need your NHS number when registering for a jab. Fact. Posts shared on Facebook have claimed people not having their NHS number to hand is causing the biggest bottleneck when administering the vaccine. This is not true. If you do not know your number, you can still register for the vaccine. The NHS website says you do not need your NHS number to use NHS services, including booking appointments. Some people have reported receiving fraudulent text messages or phone calls in relation to the COVID-19 vaccine. You will never be asked to pay for a vaccine and any contact asking for your bank details in relation to a vaccine appointment is a scam. Myth. You do not need the vaccine if you have had the virus. Fact. You still need the vaccine even if you have had COVID-19. Reinfection is still possible if you have had it once and experts do not know how long someone is immune from getting sick again once recovering from covid Due to the severe health risks associated with the virus, you should still take the vaccine if offered it. Myth. You can catch COVID-19 from the vaccine. Fact. The vaccine does not contain any part of the COVID virus, dead or alive, but comprises mRNA, which gives instructions to your cells on how to make a spike protein. Therefore, you cannot catch COVID-19 from the vaccine, but it is possible to catch coronavirus and not realise you have the symptoms until after your vaccination appointment. Myth. Vaccines alter your DNA. Fact. The vaccines do not alter your DNA. 
They comprise mRNA that gives the body instructions on how to make proteins on the surface of the virus. This does not alter your DNA, but teaches your body an immune response to COVID-19 in case you are exposed. Myth. Dr. Elisa Granato, one of the first participants in the vaccine trial, has died. Fact. Dr. Granato was one of the first participants in human trials of the AstraZeneca and Oxford University vaccine and has not died. The false claims of her death prompted her to tweet that she was very much alive and having a cup of tea. Myth. Bill Gates is using the vaccine to secretly microchip the world. Fact. Mr. Gates is regularly the subject of conspiracy theories due to his charity's work in vaccine development. However, there is no evidence that the Microsoft founder or anyone else is trying to implant microchips in anyone through vaccines. Mr. Gates has also repeatedly denied these claims. This conspiracy theory may have originated from a December study published by a team at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The study was funded in part by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The team had developed an approach to encode medical history on a patient by including a small amount of dye with a vaccine, but it never experimented on humans and did not include any hardware technology such as microchips. This article is by Stephen McElkenny. The Herald, Monday the 25th of January 2021. News. Formal council leader suspended after sharing confidential information. This article is by David Ball. A former council leader who shared confidential information on Facebook has been suspended for three months by the Standards Commission. John Ross Scott, who now represents Orkney Island Council, breached the Code of Conduct after sharing private information about his local authority, declaring a coronavirus major emergency and also publicised the death of a colleague before their family had been fully notified. Mr Scott, the former leader of Borders Council, breached four parts of the Code of Conduct following a hearing by Standards Commission Scotland. He has now been suspended from attending meetings of the full council for the next three months. Ashley Dunn, chair of the hearing panel, said the requirement for councillors to refrain from disclosing confidential information is a key requirement of the councillors' code of conduct. The panel noted that a failure to do so can damage the reputation and integrity of a council and can also impede discussions and decision-making. The panel agreed that, in this case, it was legitimate for the council to have decided that the information be kept confidential until such a time as the proposals discussed had been finalised and officers had sufficient time to prepare and manage external communications. This would ensure the council's position and response were communicated clearly and fully. As well as publishing confidential information about the pandemic, Mr Scott was also found to have breached the code by making public the death of another councillor, Kevin Woodbridge, despite relatives having not yet advised all close family members of the news. Mr Scott, who was a councillor in the border for 23 years, including serving as leader between February 2002 and May 2003, was also the Scottish Liberal Democrats' transport spokesperson in the run-up to the 1999 Holyrood election. 
He joined the SNP in 2014, was the chairman of NHS Orkney from 2007 to 2015 and elected to Orkney Council in 2017, representing Kirkwall East. On March the 16th, 2020, Mr Scott attended a private briefing for councillors by the authorities' senior management team to discuss the council's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. But later that day, Mr Scott published a post on his Facebook page containing information about the council's response to the pandemic and the briefing the panel found. Mr Scott also took part in another councillor's briefing about the pandemic response on March the 23rd, before later that day publishing a post outlining the recommendations that had been approved at the meeting. On March the 24th, Mr Scott was emailed by Orkney Council's Interim Chief Executive highlighting confidentiality requirements and was told he was to refrain from attending members' briefings with immediate effect until further notice. The following day, Mr Scott replied, stating he had removed references to the Council's declaration of a major emergency and possibility of a reduction in bin collections and recycling. He was then told on April 15, 2020, he could resume attending the confidential briefings as long as he behaved. But five days later, Mr Scott attended a briefing session where news of the death of another councillor the previous day was discussed. Later that day, Mr Scott published a post on his Facebook page in which he stated he was saddened to learn of the death of Mr Woodbridge. Mr Scott was contacted separately by the son and daughter of Mr Woodbridge who asked him to retract his post as they had not yet advised all close family members of the news and the Facebook post was deleted. The Standard Commission panel acknowledged that while Mr Scott may have been trying to be open and transparent, it was clear that the briefings were private and that the discussions and information provided at them was not to be disclosed. The Standards Commission concluded that in sharing the news of the councillor's death, Mr Scott failed to show due regard for the relative's feelings or wishes and failed to demonstrate courtesy and respect towards the other councillor's family. Mr Scott breached paragraphs 3.16, 3.17, 3.1 and 3.2. He was asked to provide evidence and mitigation before the panel decided to suspend him. Mr Scott told the panel that he had raised concerns that the council was not providing sufficient and timely information to the public about its response to the pandemic. In relation to publicising his colleague's death, Mr Scott maintained it had not been clear to him that the information was private or to be kept confidential, although he accepted that the timing of his post had been a mistake. In his mitigating evidence, Mr Scott told the panel that he was experiencing personal difficulties and was struggling with an increased workload at the time, which included dealing with complaints and concerns from constituents who considered they were not being provided with adequate information about the Council's response to the pandemic. He added that he had simply been seeking to be open and transparent with the public by keeping them informed about developments. Mr Scott argued that the majority of the information disclosed was already in the public domain and that no actual harm had resulted from his postings, which were factual in nature. But he accepted that he may have inadvertently handicapped the efforts of staff to respond to the rapidly developing situation. 
This article is by David Ball, The Herald. Friday, the 22nd of January, 2021. News. Glasgow Airport owner examines transport of medicines, blood and organs by drone around Scotland. This article is by Ian McConnell. A project is underway to develop and trial a distribution network using drones to transport essential medicines, blood, organs and other medical supplies throughout Scotland. Rural areas of Scotland are highlighted as particular potential beneficiaries of such a network by Glasgow and Aberdeen Airport's owner AGS, which is leading the project consortium. Live drone flight trials will be part of the CALIS Care and Equity Healthcare Logistics UAS Scotland project, which started on December the 1st, AGS noted. The consortium, bringing together 14 organisations, including the University of Strathclyde, has secured £1.5 million from the UK Industrial Strategy Future Flight Challenge Fund to demonstrate how autonomous drone technology can enhance access to essential medical supplies, particularly in rural parts of Scotland. The consortium also includes air traffic control operator NATS. Asked whether there were any issues around security of transport of such cargo using drones, a spokesman for AGS Airports replied, security of drones and cargo is a priority consideration, especially considering the nature of the cargo. Our consortium partner, DGP Intelsius, are one of the global market leaders of sample transport and temperature compliant packaging solutions. They bring expertise in transportation of medical goods, including vaccinations by drone, to the consortium. On the project's geographical coverage, the spokesman said the project focuses geographically on Scotland, covering all areas, remote, rural and urban, but aims to meet NHS objectives around equity of care in serving remote communities. The concept is scalable and there is no reason why the network, if successful in Scotland, could not be extended further afield. Derek Proven, Chief Executive of AGS, flagged potential for the use of drone technology to reduce waiting times for test results while accelerating delivery of crucial medical supplies. He also highlighted potential for the project to pave the way for use of drone-enabled logistics in other sectors. AGS said that as well as developing the ground infrastructure required to recharge the drones and the systems to control them while flying, a key aspect of the project would be the design of pathways to ensure the drones can safely share airspace with civil aviation. It added the project will also ensure critical aspects such as public safety, security and noise levels are considered. AGS noted that a digital blueprint of the drone delivery network would then be created with the potential to connect hospitals, pathology laboratories, distribution centres and GP surgeries across Scotland. The project is scheduled to run until spring next year. Mr Proven said this project has the potential to completely revolutionise the way in which healthcare services are delivered in Scotland. The CELUS Consortium also includes ANRA Technologies, UK, Schneider Electric, UK, Atkins, AVI Drones for Good, the Drone Office, Connected Places Catapult, 
Trax International, U Avionics, Leonardo MW and Dronamics. Mr Proven said the organisations within this consortium are some of the most skilled and experienced in drone technology. The funding from UK Industrial Strategy will allow us to work together to overcome some of the challenges associated with scaling drone operations to deliver a transport network that is technically, socially and financially viable. He added, although our focus is on healthcare, the CELUS project could pave the way for the deployment of drone-enabled logistics in other sectors and has the potential to change the way airspace is used by manned and unmanned vehicles. Asked how AGS Airport's leadership of the consortium had come about, its spokesman replied, The concept was originally developed by Strathclyde University, with whom we have strong links. We are keen to understand our role as an airport in this third revolution of autonomous, sustainable flight, and CELUS provides an ideal opportunity for us to explore that, while also fast-tracking a network that can provide direct benefits to the NHS at a time when it is more critical than ever. NHS Ayrshire and Darren and NHS West of Scotland Innovation Hub will work alongside the consortium on the project, AGS noted. Karen Bell of NHS Ayrshire and Darren said, This is an opportunity to work with aviation colleagues to explore the innovation use of drone technology to address some of the potential challenges facing daily delivery of NHS services. University of Strathclyde Principal Professor Sir Jim MacDonald said, We look forward to demonstrating the potential value of drone delivery of medical supplies for the public, NHS, the economy, social equality and for the aviation manufacturing industry in Scotland. This article is by Ian McConnell. The Herald, Wednesday the 27th of January 2021. News. Mountain hares to be given greater protection in Scotland from March. This article is by Alistair Grant. Mountain hares in Scotland are to be given greater protection from March, it has been confirmed. The move will make it illegal to intentionally kill, injure or take mountain hares at any time unless a licence is obtained. A licence would previously have been required during the closed season. However, this will now be the case throughout the whole year. The new arrangement will be overseen by Nature Scott, with licences issued only under certain circumstances, such as concerns for public health or protection of crops and timber. Those found guilty of breaking the new laws could face a maximum penalty of five years imprisonment, an unlimited fine or both. MSPs voted to protect mountain hares last year following an an amendment to the Animals and Wildlife Bill by Green MSP Alison Johnston. Scottish Greens Environment spokesperson Mark Russell said, This iconic native species has been indiscriminately killed on Scotland's grouse moors even though it is at risk. These protections come as a direct result of the tireless work of my colleague and species champion Alison Johnston, who forced the government to act. Scotland is in a nature emergency with one in nine species at threat. That's why we will need to continue to hold the Scottish Government's feet to the fire on this. Nature Scott cannot hand out licences willy-nilly to kill mountain hares, like they have done with the supposedly protected beaver and other species. 
it's long past time we brought an end to the destructive practice of grouse shooting and restored Scotland's nature for future generations. SNP Nature Environment Minister Ben McPherson said protecting Scotland's wild animals in their natural environment is a key priority for this Scottish Government. Mountain hares are an iconic Scottish species and it is right that we protect them. Donald Fraser, Nature Scots Head of Wildlife Management, said mountain hares are only native hare are an important and valued species in the Scottish Hills. This increased protection will help ensure healthy populations of mountain hares can be found and enjoyed in the mountains, while giving some recourse when there is a need to, to prevent damage being caused to saplings or sensitive habitats. We are also working with several partner organisations to continue to improve our understanding of mountain hare populations across Scotland, along with other work to support their conservation status. This article is by Alistair Grant. The Herald, Wednesday the 27th of January 2021. News. Outcry over inhumane online situational judgment test for medical students. This article is by Helen McArdle. Medical students have faced unfair and in some cases inhumane treatment during an online exam which saw some would-be doctors failed for putting on a jumper and others left to urinate in their seats. The fiasco emerged as thousands of final year medical students sat a crucial end of degree exam known as the Situational Judgment Test, SJT. The compulsory 140 minute test is an essential career requirement for entry into NHS as a junior doctor. For medical students, the SJT score makes up 50% of their national ranking, with the other 50% coming from their academic performance over their five-year degree. However, as the Herald revealed in November, the SJT, which is set nationally by the UK Foundation Programme Office, UKFPO, but was previously delivered by universities, has been outsourced for the first time to US firm Pearson View due to the pandemic. This enabled tests to be sat remotely by students via laptops at home. Confusing and seemingly arbitrary rules, however, have seen some would-be doctors disqualified by online invigilators mid-test for removing their jumper, using a pen and paper, or turning to switch off a noisy clock. Some students were failed for taking a toilet break without permission, while others, fearing disqualification, wet themselves instead. In a statement, UK co-chairs for the BMA Medical Students Committee, Becky Bates and Tanaya Mapako, said they had been shocked and distressed by some candidates' experiences. They added, they indicate the treatment for some medical students undergoing exams has been unfair, unacceptable and in some cases inhumane. Yesterday they wrote to the UK FPO warning that a blanket policy to refuse toilet breaks could discriminate against disabled students and called for a review of how Pearson View has delivered the SJT. One medical student who shared her experience anonymously on Twitter wrote, I was terminated part way through after my online invigilator saw me using blank paper to work through a question. 
There was no clear guidance that blank paper was not allowed, e.g. it was not included in multiple lists of prohibited items sent to candidates, although these lists did clearly prohibit items like firearms, hair clips and chewing gum. She said it took weeks of emailing the UK FPO, including sending a legal letter before she was granted permission to sit the remainder of the test. She added, In the meantime, I was made aware of many similar cases. Other causes of revoked exams have included putting on a jumper, turning around to turn off a noisy clock, receiving a cold call through a safe exam browser, candidate thought it was the invigilator, and playing a multimedia video question out loud instead of via headphones. Another student's exam was revoked after he tried to contact the proctor numerous times to request to use a toilet, was ignored and then did so anyway to avoid wetting himself. Multiple other students in this position did not have their exams revoked because they chose to urinate in their seats. I can't imagine how demeaning and humiliating this must be. As students' rankings are so heavily weighted towards the SJT score, those with low or incomplete scores will be less likely to secure placements in their preferred trust or health board areas. Some medical students are considering deferring applications until next year in order to retake the SJT in a non-online setting. One GP, whose daughter's SJT exam was stopped a third of the way through, after an invigorator saw her jotting notes down on a sheet of paper, said the experience has been shocking at a time when the NHS desperately needs new doctors. She said, These are hard-working, idealistic youngsters who were planning to join the NHS as junior doctors in August to help cope with the pandemic within a decimated workforce. They have been told that they may or may not be able to get a job somewhere in the UK, but the likelihood is that, because of this shambles, these students, if allowed to work at all, would be sent to jobs in deaneries far away that they struggled to fill rather than posts they applied for and were well on track to get near their support network, which, within the context of a pandemic and what they will therefore need to face as juniors, is so important. A junior doctor working in Scotland added, I am horrified that the new influx of doctors who we desperately need this August are being subjected to this disorganisation that has been outsourced to a massive private company who have let the students down. Lewis O'Connor, chair of the BMA's Scottish Medical Students Committee, said, These reports are obviously very concerning, and while we have not had them raised with us directly, we are seeing the issue being discussed across social media. We would urge medical students in Scotland who have experienced anything like this while sitting their SJT to contact their local BMA reps urgently so we can look into it for them. Pearson View has already faced criticism over the delivery of online barrister exams in England after technical problems left around 500 students unable to complete the exams and some candidates complaining that they had to urinate into buckets because they were not allowed toilet breaks. The outcry prompted hundreds of medical students to book to sit the SJT at one of Pearson View's UK test centres instead of online but a shortage of places led to some Scottish students travelling hundreds of miles from Glasgow to Wigan or Harrogate, while English counterparts were travelling to Inverness. 
UKFPO insists that problems only affected a small number of students but did not respond to queries from the Herald about exactly how many. They are offering resits to affected students as a gesture of goodwill. Mike Masding, co-chair of the UKFPO, said, Out of 8,000 UKFPO applicants, a small number were disqualified by the testing invigilator for prohibited actions. We are working with individual applicants whose tests were discontinued and where appropriate we will offer the option to rebook. All applicants were given guidance in advance of the test but we will continue to work with partners to review the process and ensure all applicants are fully supported. This article is by Helen McArdle. The Herald, Monday the 25th of January 2021. News. Scottish MedTech secures £1.2 million of funding. This article is by Christy Dorsey. Edinburgh MedTech company Manus Neurodynamica has closed a £1.2 million funding round to support the launch of its digital pen, which provides an early warning of Parkinson's disease and other neurological conditions. With this latest funding secured, Manus is rolling out its Neuromotor pen later this year, initially focusing on the UK and Benelux markets. The company is also progressing work to secure regulatory approval to start selling in the US. Investors in this funding round included the North East Innovation Fund, supported by the European Regional Development Fund and managed by North Star Ventures, Profit with Purpose Investor SIS Ventures and Old College Capital, the University of Edinburgh's Venture Fund. The Neuromotor Pen employs sensors linked with analytical software which analyses the slightest limb and hand movements to help doctors assess whether a patient has early signs of Parkinson's or other neurological conditions. As well as providing a quick and objective aid to diagnosis, The CE-marked product also helps with the ongoing monitoring of those conditions. Following a development contract with NHS England to develop a version that can be used in GP surgeries, Manus is currently in advanced talks to supply the pens to a leading UK-based primary care group. The pen has passed clinical trials with the NHS in the north-east of England and Scotland, and is currently being used by Northumbria NHS Foundation Trust. Led by Chief Executive Rutger Zeitzma, Manus has spent more than 10 years developing the product, from concept through to manufacture and rollout. In January 2020, the firm signed a five-year contract with stationary brand Stabilo to manufacture the pens in Germany. Funding rounds totalling £5 million to date, including a £750,000 financing round closed in May last year, have been led by Par Equity with support from the Scottish Investment Bank and Old College Capital. 2021 looks set to be an extremely busy year for Manus, Mr Zeitzma said. Having spent more than 10 years developing, trialling and refining our first product, we can finally look forward to seeing our neuromotor pens implemented more broadly and making a real difference to the lives of people living with Parkinson's and other neurological conditions. This article is by Christy Dorsey. Recorded from the Herald, 26th of January 2021. Livingston confirmed David Martindale has been deemed fit and proper by the SFA. 
Aidan Smith. David Martindale's appointment as Livingston manager has been approved by the Scottish Football Association. Martindale faced an SFA hearing because of his criminal past, but a swift decision has been made. The Lions say that they are delighted that a positive outcome has been reached and they now hope that Martindale is given a chance to fully focus on his role as manager of the football club. A club statement added, We believe this to be the correct outcome and think it sends a positive message across society. David Martindale said, I would like to go on record thanking everybody at the SFA, SPFL, and more importantly, I'd like to thank every single person on social media, the fans, pundits and media for their support. A big thank you also to Hannah Bardell, MP, Angela Constance, MSP, and Professor Phil Scratton, and I'm delighted that the SFA has given me a chance to progress my career with Livingston Football Club. The SFA commented, The Scottish FA can confirm that following a scheduled meeting between a subcommittee of the Professional Game Board, the Livingston manager, David Martindale, and club officials, pursuant to Article 10, it has accepted the representations from Livingston FC that Mr Martindale is a fit and proper person to be included in the club's official return. Recorded from the Herald, 26th of January 2021. New date confirmed for Livingston vs Rangers clash after postponement for Betfred Cup final, Mark Hendry. Rangers have learned the new date for their Premiership clash with Livingston after it was rescheduled for the Betfred Cup final. Levy square off against St Johnson in the Hamden showpiece on February 28th, which was originally the date of their league action with the leaders at the Tony Macaroni Arena. We told recently how the game would be moved and now the SPFL have confirmed the rescheduled match's new date. The game will now take place on March 3rd with a 6pm kickoff time. St Johnson's scheduled match away to Hamilton has also been rearranged and will now also take place on March 3rd. Kickoff time in that game at the FOY Stadium will be 7.45pm. You are listening to the Hell of Scotland recorded on Wednesday 27th January 2021. Edinburgh without Jenners is like Paris without the Eiffel Tower. An opinion article by Rosemary Goring, literary editor and columnist. News that Jenners, once renowned as the Harrods of the North, is to close in May, has left many of its customers bereft. Not that it comes as any great shock. In recent years, while run by House of Fraser, it has been painful to visit, with its warren of shabby corridors, groaning lifts that never seem to arrive, and its stock on almost permanent reduction. In its prime, however, Jenner's was the foremost department store in the capital, a byword for class and style. Its heyday lasted for well over 150 years, from its founding in 1838 by Charles Jenner's and Charles Kennington. The prospect of Edinburgh without Jenner's is like Paris without the Eiffel Tower. On May 3rd, when the tills go silent, the city will bid farewell to its most lustrous store and the memories it holds. It was here that Christina Kay, the inspiration for Muriel Sparks' Miss Jean Brodie, could occasionally be seen in her cloche hat, examining the latest couture styles. She would then go home and recreate them for herself at a fraction of the cost. Spark was a connoisseur of Edinburgh stores, having worked as secretary for the owner of Smalls, which, with Forsyth and Patrick Thompson's, Darlings, Bins and Malls, were in fierce competition with Jenner's. In her autobiography, she evokes the glamour. 
The shop assistants in these super-elegant establishments all wore long black dresses and walked with a special gliding movement. On entering the store, the customer would be greeted by a tall man in morning coat and top hat. He would give a half bow, a mere inclination. Madame Desires. In an Italian family memoir, Mary Contini recounts when her husband's mother went in search of a wedding dress in 1952. The department head, a Miss MacDonald, recognised the task ahead in getting the bride-to-be's mother to part with serious money and plied her with champagne. Miss MacDonald assessed her adversary. She looked extremely worn in her winter coat. 1949, end of season sale, she whispered to her assistant. As a child, going to Jenner's was like a trip to Disneyland. Its toy department was filled with rocking horses that cost more than the real thing. Teddy bears as big as grizzlies, and train sets that kept fathers occupied for hours on end while their wives sit tail grey on the third floor, or had their hair done in its swanky hairdressers. With the shop's layout constructed to mimic a magic mystery tour, the toilets were so hard to find it required the nose of a cadaver dog, or a degree in orienteering. Until recently, the staff exuded a self-conscious sense of distinction. They were a Swanea's cabin crew, but with added froideur. Such a manner was perhaps necessary, given the clientele they had to serve. Many of them middle class, demanding, loud and loaded. Morning and afternoon, middle-aged and elderly Edinburgh ladies could be found taking coffee and tea in the cafe with the best view in the city. The stands during a Hearts Hib derby could hardly be noisier. At lunchtime, the restaurant, serving a Sunday-style roast six days a week, was always packed. With its imminent closure, there are fears that much of Morningside will starve. But it was not just women of a certain age who flocked to Jenner's. Not so long ago, one of this penny-pinching nation's fat cats was seen emerging, burdened with carrier bags. Always immaculately dressed, he waited every year until the store's famous January sale to stock up on shirts and shoes. For men of my husband's vintage, Jenner's formed part of a golden triangle, with Fop a few yards from its rear entrance, alongside the Abbotsford Bar. Moments after the shop closed, members of the cosmetic department could be seen at the gantry, recovering from another shift battling the city's bourgeoisie. A job on the perfume and makeup counters was a retail equivalent of joining the Foreign Office. A relative who worked there one Christmas discovered that staff used secret language to ensure customers would not understand what they were saying. Conversations between spies in John Le Carrier's novels were no more heavily coded. When Jenner's as we know it finally departs the scene, it will take with it the last vestige of Edinburgh's old air of elegance. Even so, Calling it the Harrods of the North was always a misnomer. Unlike Harrods, which prides itself on attracting an international clientele, Jenner's original and enduring purpose was to serve the locals. If an emporium could sum up a city, Jenner's did. Its Victorian red sandstone grandeur was the embodiment of middle-class aspirations, status and image. Its splendid yet austere edifice upheld the principles of value for money, good taste and understated snobbery. When Glasgow designating itself miles better, Jenner's typified the capital's riposte. 
which was slightly superior. How far off those days seem. One by one the great old stores have disappeared, like glaciers crumbling into the sea. The result is streets lined with global brands that could be found anywhere, from Bogota to Berlin. When Gray's hardware store on Jewel Street closed some years ago, like Crockett's big brother, it was a treasure trove of door hooks, bath plugs, vacuums and hostess trolleys. It was obvious we were approaching the end of times of traditional shopping. Nor is Edinburgh alone in suffering a surfeit of closures. The casualties of the pandemic afflict almost every town and city. Glasgow too is reeling, not least with the recent demise of Debenhams in Argyll Street. Now House of Fraser on Buchanan Street and Harvey Nichols in Edinburgh are left to carry the torch of upmarket and glitzy department stores in central Scotland. Long may they thrive. Perhaps there are reasons to remain optimistic. The Danish billionaire, Anders Hulk Polsen, who owns the Jenner's building, has ambitious plans for it, involving a hotel, rooftop restaurant and luxury department store. Whether these will revive its fortunes is unknown. Wisely, however, he seems intent on keeping Jenner's name. Is it too much to hope that its closure in May might not signal its end, but a new lease of life? You are listening to The Hell Scotland, recorded on Tuesday 26 January 2021. Independence is the right route, but we're being led there by a rotten party. An opinion article by Neil McKay, writer-at-large. Here's Scotland's political dilemma in a nutshell. The majority of the population favour independence. However, the vehicle to get independence, the SNP, is rotting from the inside out. Regular readers know I favour independence. Not for any petty nationalist reasons, but because I see Westminster as a failed exercise in democracy. Scotland can do better. The trap for many voters is that the SNP has cornered the market on independence. Labour could open its mind to a broader constitutional policy, and perhaps might if Monica Lennon takes over. The Greens could break through as a rival independence party, and perhaps well if they can shake off their unfair student politics tag. But neither of those events has yet happened. That means most of us, who wish to see Scotland independent, are left with the SNP. So, pro-independence voters, if they aren't slavishly SNP, must play a game of cognitive dissonance and pretend the party is actually fit for purpose. The irony, of course, is that the SNP wants us to frame the forthcoming Holyrood election as a vote on independence. That suits the party well, I'm sure. Because if the election focused on the issues which mattered, namely the SNP's ability to govern, the party would be out on its ear. Clearly, the union question has now penetrated minds south of the border. You know issues in Scotland matter when London broadsheets, years late to the game, lift their lazy eyes northward and notice that all's not well in Albion. Was there anyone in Scotland, Northern Ireland or Wales who didn't roll their eyes in bored disbelief at the Sunday Times' disunited kingdom front page? Really? 
What will they be telling us next? That there's a global pandemic? But clearly, what that front page represents is a growing awareness, finally, among England's electorate that the Union is dying. As this cultural and political shift happens, provoking, as it will, an inevitable backlash, it would help if the party which speaks most loudly on independence didn't stink regardless of what direction the wind blows. Perhaps the greater irony is that one of the SNP's biggest failures has been the way it's conducted the conversation around independence. It's not just that the party has been engaged in civil war over the surest route to independence. It's that too many of its so-called leading lights have been seen to devote their time almost exclusively to the Constitution. Seldom a day goes past without the SNP's rank-and-file anti-Sturgeon faction lining up to joust with leadership loyalists on social media. Sturgeon's too slow, they scream, too centrist, too legal. The wilder ones even claim Nicola Sturgeon doesn't want independence. What a way to win over no voters. When SNP MPs, MSPs and councillors take part in their petty little Twitter wars over Plan B, I cannot be alone, as a yes voter, in feeling that their time could be much better spent. Perhaps they believe the electorate finds this wearisome Punch and Judy show entertaining. Perhaps they think we're happy our taxes subsidise this behaviour. Perhaps they realise grabbing the spotlight at all costs is good for the bank balance. The SNP's internal feuding over independence has been interminable. Thankfully, the leadership has now announced what appears to be a relatively intelligent roadmap towards a second referendum, designed to get around any Westminster intransigence. The formula seems elegantly simple and legal. If the SNP wins the majority, it will request a Section 30 order from Westminster for a referendum. If that's refused the matter can go to court. Obviously, this route won't please the anti-Sturgeon Brigade, as agreeing to it would require stepping out of that spotlight. While ordinary voters who support independence will be glad that at last a sensible route to another referendum has been developed, it won't have gone unnoticed that the plan was presented to around 1,000 SNP members at the Partish National Assembly over the weekend. It seems politically quite illiterate, mid-global pandemic as we are, for a party to appear to put the constitution and electoral fortunes ahead of people and country. Evidently, most of the anti-Sturgeon contingent are motivated by their adherence to Alex Salmon, which brings us to the greatest festering sore in the flank of the party. Whatever way you look at the Salmon-Sturgeon schism, the party comes off as rotten. It's a ghastly mess, and both sides appear as appalling as each other. If ever there was a case of a plague on both your houses, this is it. But the salmon saga is merely the rot that smells strongest. There's plenty of other stink that the smell of the salmon affair obliterates. The Crown Office is no longer fit for purpose. Scotland is a graveyard of drug users. You'd need as many fingers as the multi-armed Hindu goddess Kali to count the failures and disgraces of the SNP. The most dreadful of all these scandals go straight to the heart of the bogus claims that the SNP somehow dealt well with pandemic deaths in care homes. A special prosecution unit set up to probe Covid-linked deaths 
is investigating cases at 474 care homes in Scotland. Any investigation should go straight to the heart of government and include the First Minister and her Health Secretary, Jean Freeman. The government oversaw a policy which allowed elderly coronavirus patients to be discharged into care homes without testing negative. If there's crimes to be answered for, make sure the right people are brought to book. On and on it goes. A party which proposes to lead the nation to independence repeatedly shows itself incapable of governing and clearly the closer a second referendum comes, the more these failings will be used as a weapon to undermine independence. That's the price of the SNP endlessly, mendaciously conflating itself, not just with independence, but with Scotland as a nation. Yet here we are, with the majority of the population wishing to form a new and better country, but with only the SNP to turn to. Surely proof that fate has a grim sense of humour when it comes to Scotland. You are listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 25th January 2021. Issue of the day. Life imitates art via the Simpsons. An article by Maureen Sugden, reporter. It is said truth is stranger than fiction. But someone ought to tell producers of animated US sitcom The Simpsons this old saying as it emerges many of their historic plot lines have seemingly come to pass in real life. Excuse me? No one is suggesting the producers and writers have crystal balls, but when you appraise what storylines seem to then have gone on to occur in real life, you do at least raise a quizzical eyebrow and have a giggle at the idea of Homer Simpson being some sort of mystic Meg. Homer? If you haven't watched it in a while, or indeed ever, the cartoon sitcom features a satirical depiction of American family life, starring buffoon-like father Homer, who works as a safety inspector at the Springfield nuclear power plant. His housewife, beloved Marge, and their three children, troublemaking ten-year-old Bart, confident Lisa, aged eight, and baby Maggie. The show parodies American culture and the human condition. So what's been going on? Since it first aired in December 1989, there have been more than 700 episodes of The Simpsons and it appears that many storylines from older episodes have apparently come to pass. Such as... Last week, social media users were quick to note the array of coincidences between Vice President Kamala Harris's outfit at the inauguration ceremony and Lisa Simpson's outfit in a 2000 episode, Bart to the Future. In the show, Lisa becomes president and says an iconic line. As you know, we've inherited quite a budget crunch from President Trump. Trump? Asked about this episode, one of the show's writers, Dan Greeney, told The Hollywood Reporter that at the time it aired, it was a warning to America. As well as predicting Trump's presidency, Lisa wore a purple jacket and pearls, similar to Harris's outfit last Wednesday. What else? Tom Hanks was the host of a star-studded virtual concert that took place instead of the usual round of inaugural balls last week. In a cameo in the 2007 Simpsons movie, 
Hanks appears to propose a new Grand Canyon in Springfield, saying, Hello, I'm Tom Hanks. The US government has lost its credibility, so it's borrowing some of mine. It also foresaw Biden-Harris. In a special short online episode titled West Wing Story, released on YouTube in 2019, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden were put together in a can-can outside the White House. Show animator and director David Silverman tweeted, I set up this kick line for ending. Just happened to put then-candidates Biden and Harris together. Did we predict future again? 2020? In the same 1993 episode, Margin Chains, a mysterious virus from Asia invades the town. The Osaka flu spreads like wildfire and an angry mob demand a cure. When they knock over a truck outside the hospital, they release a crate of killer bees and social media has been alight with the idea the show predicted the pandemic and also a plague of murder hornets that were found in the US for the first time last year. As Oscar Wilde put it, in his 1889 essay, The Decay of Lying, Wilde wrote, Life imitates art far more than art imitates life. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday the 22nd of January 2021. January is the cruelest month. An opinion article by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. April, T.S. Eliot always contended, is the cruelest month. It's a theory, I suppose. Every time I've read that line in the wasteland, though, the question I want to ask is, Tom, please show us your workings. April, as Eliot points out himself, at least has lilacs. January, though, what has January to offer? Snow, floods, grey light and general misery. Not sure Death in Paradise on the telly makes up for all that. And that's in a good year. This year is definitely not that. With the exception of those who have to leave the house for work, we are all stuck at home in a way none of us have experienced before. No midweek visits to the Italian restaurant, no gigs, no movies, no coffee and cake at the National Gallery's cafe. January 2021 has seen the daily release of frankly numbing figures of people dying from symptoms related to coronavirus. The first COVID-19 related death in the UK was recorded on March the 6th last year. Here we are, less than a year later, closing in fast on the horrific statistic of 100,000 deaths caused by the virus. There is so much grief behind that number. We can, we should, ask the question why? Why is the UK at the top of charts when it comes to the daily Covid death rate? There are areas where the Prime Minister's favourite soundbite, world beating, is actually not the thing to aspire to. For the rest of us though, January 2021 has been a long, anxious, wearying wait of time. A time to endure, not enjoy, too early for signs of renewal. Lilacs breeding in Deadland are at least a few months away. Still, this week has seen a few tiny shoots of hope. My mum got her first vaccination on Wednesday. 
my mother-in-law will get hers this weekend. There is now a chance that I'll get to see them both again in the flesh at some point this year. Meanwhile, over in America, the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president felt like a kind of vaccination too. A vaccination against malice and ignorance. We can say goodbye and good riddance to an incompetent, hateful, in every sense, incumbent who should be remembered and excoriated for separating kids from their parents and putting them in cages. Like most inaugurations, January 2017 being the notable exception, it was a ceremony full of fine words and lofty sentiments. Fine words and lofty sentiments are the easy bit of government, of course. President Biden has inherited a country riven by division and a deadly disease. To find a way through both may be quite a challenge. Still, the fine words do matter. I can't say I watched all of the inauguration. I didn't stay up for Tom Hanks. Sorry, Tom. But I did catch Amanda Gorman, the 22-year-old young black woman who brought actual poetry to the event. Her poem, The Hill We Climb, rose to the occasion. There is always light, she concluded. If only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. January has been the cruelest of months, but hopefully this will be the worst we feel. Who knows? April might look better. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 22nd of January 2021. Brexit, UK government criticised by leading musicians over negotiating failure by Caitlin Hutchison. Scottish musicians including violinist Nicola Benedetti, Dame Evelyn Glennie, Simple Minds Jim Kerr and Midgeure are among the leading music industry figures who have criticised the government's Brexit deal for not including visa-free travel for musicians. More than 100 stars, from pop singers to classical composers, signed a letter saying performers have been shamefully failed by the post-Brexit travel rules. The letter, published in The Times and backed by fellow Scots musicians Catriona Price and Gina McCormack, as well as Sting, prominent Brexiteer Roger Daltrey, Liam Gallagher and Queen's Brian May, says there is a gaping hole where the promised free movement for musicians should be. The resulting costs for work permits and other red tape will make many tours unviable, especially for young emerging musicians who are already struggling to keep their heads above water owing to the Covid ban on live music, the signatories argue. The letter adds the negotiating failure will tip many performers over the edge. It urges the government to do what it said it would do and negotiate paperwork-free travel to Europe for British artists and their equipment. The deal should be reciprocal, the letter says. This week a minister said the door is open if the EU is willing to consider the UK's very sensible proposals and visa arrangements for musicians. Culture Minister Caroline Dynage said the EU rejected the UK's plan, but said the government is willing to discuss the situation again. Ms Dynage said a 90-day visa-free travel period for musicians was not offered by the EU, contrary to previous reports. An online petition calling for a visa-free travel cultural work permit with the EU has so far attracted more than 263,000 signatures. By Caitlin Hutchison. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 27th of January 2021. Celtic Connections Review. The Secret Sisters, Canaris Quintet and Tober Sessions. Keith Bruce, 
Four stars. When last summer's festivals were cancelled in the early response to the health emergency, organisations like the Edinburgh Festival and Scottish Opera set a very high bar for the standard of online performances that filled the gap. It is not to diminish the value of the quality film and video work that has been created since, and has been a feature of Celtic Connections as well, to say that Laura and Lydia Rogers provided a reminder that sometimes keeping things simple can work just as well. Past favourites at the festival and due to be in Glasgow again before the pandemic scuppered touring, they sat at home in the United States with one guitar and a single microphone and sang five songs in close harmony. The camera which could easily have been one on a phone or a tablet computer never moved as they chatted to the audience to cover between song tuning, exactly as they would have done at a gig. There was an intimacy to the audio-visual postcard they sent across the Atlantic that exactly matched the style of their performance, sepia-tinged and missing as already. The duo encapsulated their career too by including Do You Love an Apple from their debut album, mainly of traditional songs and country covers, through to the selections from their fourth Saturn Return, entirely composed of originals in honouring the women of their own family who made them in songs like Silver, Cabin and Healer in the Sky. The smell that accompanies the elegiac tone of their compositions is also the correct response to the original sound of the female five-piece Canaris Quintet in Glasgow's old fruit market, three fiddlers and two strummers and pickers, whose sound has a foot in the past and one in the future. They too covered their own, rather briefer career, from the earliest music written for the album Free One, to a pair of tunes box fresh from lockdown. The new music showcased by Myra Red Green, Soren McLean and Roddy Wimble at Antober on the Isle of Mull had an unfortunately uniform downbeat tone to start the evening off. For all of the variation in the songwriting, Green was accompanied by McLean and then he was joined by the voice and violin of Hannah Fraser before the Idlewild frontman's more adventurous soundscapes in the company of Andrew Mitchell. If it all could have been cheerier, it was still an example of outsourcing that should continue to be part of the festival even after it is able to welcome audiences to Glasgow venues again. By Keith Bruce. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 25th of January 2021. Film. A new adaptation of Blythe Spirit dappled with sentiments from a bygone era. By Herald Magazine. Transforming a classic piece of theatre into a contemporary on-screen adaptation without losing the charm that made it so unique will always be an undertaking. Dappled with sentiments from a bygone era, it's precisely the situation in which Noel Coward's classic comedy Blythe Spirit finds itself. Directed by Edward Hall, whose previous credits include hit ITV series Downton Abbey and acclaimed BBC drama Spooks, the script centres on wildly successful yet assuredly unhinged crime novelist Charles Condamine, played by fellow Downton Abbey alumnus Dan Stevens. Set in 1937, the light-hearted tale unravels within the Art Deco confines of the writer's sprawling Surrey home, which he shares with current wife Ruth, played by Now You See Me star Isla Fisher. Edging towards insanity, a tweed-clad Charles desperately searches for the inspiration that had been absent since the passing of his first wife, Elvira, played by Knocked Up's Leslie Mann. That is, until an enthralling evening at the theatre captures Charles' imagination, resulting in the show's star, a famous medium named Madame Arcati, brought to life by Skyfall's Dame Judi Dench, travelling to conduct a private séance in their home. 
I think it's interesting to remember that this play was written in 1941, where Britain was facing a pretty bleak time, and Coward had a peculiarly British ability to find comedy and wit and humour and levity in some pretty bleak subject matter, notes Stevens, 38. Essentially, my character is a grieving alcoholic at the end of his terror, struggling with writer's block, and you know, he's not in a great way. Yet Coward finds this absolutely mad triangle, and you know, it's just glorious chaos, really. I think, you know, it's quite nice to remember that in the midst of all the bleakness. A combination of physical comedy and an altogether softer approach to Coward's original sharp, quick-witted exchanges, the film sees Madame Arcati conjure the spirit of Charles' first wife, Elvira, resulting in an ensuing love triangle from beyond the grave. You've got a group of us really sat around, essentially watching Judy do her thing. We have a couple of interjections, but it's really the Madame Arcati show at that moment. Quite literally, add Stevens of shooting the film's seance scenes. There are all sorts of effects going on and it's a long old scene. But great fun, you know. Just a very silly gang, sat around a table with Judy Dench doing an incredible work. It's a pretty great day at the office. First opening in the West End in 1941, the original production was subsequently transferred to the big screen, courtesy of David Lean and his 1945 adaptation. By today's standards, the premise of two wives quarrelling over their husband might be considered a little outdated as a concept. However, the script boasts a warm and nostalgic undercurrent which, paired with the film's period setting, provides some suitably comedic respite in the midst of an otherwise bleak January. It had all the right notes that made me want to do it, really, says Stevens, and also it was my first time trying to do Coward on screen, which not a lot of people have tried to do, to be honest, and it hasn't always been done successfully. There was a lovely circularity to this project, in that my first West End job was No Coward's Hay Fever with Judy Dench, directed by Sir Peter Hall. I started out in his theatre company and it's his son, Ed Hall, who came to me with this really lovely adaptation. As the tit-for-tat storyline unravels, Charles's current wife, Ruth, finds herself increasingly jealous of Elvira, a woman only her husband can see. Equal parts talented and manipulative, Man's ghostly figure is something of a wind-up merchant when it comes to subtly taunting her living counterpart, a trait that captured the attention of man from the outset. I was thrilled to be asked to join in. I was asked kind of late in the game. I think someone else dropped out, laughs man, 48. To be able to completely let loose and be this big character, I've never done that before. To just carry myself the way that she carries herself, Ed Hall had the whole movie in his head, exactly how he wanted to shoot it, and wanted it to be, and I just kind of followed what his vision was. Stepping into the role alongside acting icon Dame Judy, Mann admits to being a little intimidated by the whole endeavour. She's a national treasure, declares Mann. She's the funniest, she's the warmest, she's the best. I shared the dressing room with her. Well, it was one room separated by this paper partition thing, so I can hear everything. And, because I was alone in my room and she was always with someone talking, I guess I was eavesdropping in what she was saying. She would have been more than happy to talk about things, I'm sure, but I was so intimidated by her, I didn't feel, I didn't want to bother her. I don't know why she would want to waste her time talking to me, so that's why I eavesdrop. I would just lay on my couch and listen, listen to her beautiful melodic voice. Not in a creepy way, I just couldn't not hear because I was alone and so I guess I was listening in and everything Judy Dench was talking about. She's going to think I'm such a creep. Blythe Spirit is available to watch now in Sky Cinema by Herald Magazine. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 22nd of January 2021. Quinton Jardin on San Marte de Impuris in Catalonia 
by Susan Swarbrick, columnist and senior features writer. Quentin Jardin, crime writer. Where is it? San Marte de Impuris. It's part of La Scala, the town in Spain where I've had a place for the last 30 years. The oldest stones in San Marte de Impuris date to Roman times and can be found in the church. Change happens very slowly there. Around 25 years ago, they decided they were going to pave the streets. Before then, all the services, electricity cables, phone lines and everything else, were above ground and when it rained, the street flowed downhill and they were left with big ruts and rivulets. When it was proposed by the town council to pave the streets, a very Catalan thing happened. Black sheets were hung out of every window in town as a sign of disapproval, but the black sheets had no effect and the town was paved. Like everything else, gradually it became accepted. Why do you go there? The main square in San Marte de Impures is very small yet busy. There are four restaurants with tables outside. Try to get a table there in the second half of July or first half of August, you can forget it. Over the years, I got to know all the restaurateurs. How often do you go? At least four or five times a year. The last time we were there was in February. My wife Eileen and I have family there. Ryanair is like our bus. How did you discover it? Almost by accident. Friends of ours bought a place in Esterty in the 1980s. My late wife Irene and I fancied doing the same, but rather than Esterty, we bought just over the hill in La Scala. I've been going ever since. I have had four different places in La Scala. What's your favourite memory? Getting married to Eileen in St. Marty de Impuris. The hoops we had to jump through to arrange a civil ceremony were unbelievable. The bureaucracy was so crazy that our marriage ceremony was in September 21, but we didn't actually sign the paperwork until October 30. We actually got married twice. We had the civil ceremony with all our friends, then a month later had to go through it all again with the mayor at the town hall. Who do you take? Eileen, we sometimes invite family and friends. What do you take? My laptop. Everything I need is already there. What do you leave behind? Nothing. Life is continuous. Sum it up in five words. Best place in the world. What travel spot is on your post-lockdown wish list? Canada. I've been a few times. If I had to choose a Canadian city to live, it would be Toronto. But for a holiday, I would pick Vancouver. I'd like to go for Sunday breakfast at Granville Island Public Market. Vancouver has an excellent book festival. The Roots of Evil by Quinton Jardin is published by Headline, price £20. By Susan Swarbrick. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 27th of January 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Robert Burns, Brigadoon and its Supernatural Tales by Vicky Allen, Senior Features Writer. The 15th century cobblestone bridge crossing the River Doon at Alloway looks idyllic and picturesque by day and in most tourist photographs, or even on our Chris £5 notes. But of course, it has another darker and more dramatic life in the imagination of Scots and those the world over who have enjoyed our bard's tale of Tam O'Shanter. It is an icon of the supernatural and local superstition, a beguiling reminder of the weird and uncanny. In our mind's darkness, witches tear towards it, a grey mare pounds, tail flying in the wind and rain. Nan leaps to clutch the... This is the place, famously, to which the drunken Tam fled in his mare Maggie, pursued by this hellish horde, knowing that a running stream they dare not cross. For Robert Burns' great narrative poem wasn't purely invented. It was based upon a local lore and story, recorded in a letter to his friend, the art critic and antiquary, Captain Francis Gross. 
There were Burns' notes in this epistle, three which stories associated with the Alloway Kirk. Amongst those authentic tales was that of a Carrick farmer who saw a witch's dance in the haunted Kirk and had to flee for his life with witches and warlocks at his horse's tail. I need not mention, writes Burns, the universally known fact that no diabolical power can pursue you beyond the middle of a running stream. Lucky it was for the poor farmer that the River Doon was so near, for notwithstanding the speed of his horse, which was a good one, against he reached the middle of the arch of the bridge and consequently the middle of the stream. The pursuing vengeful hags were so close at his heels that one of them actually sprung to seize him. By day Brigadoon is almost too neat and picturesque, just above the brig, an ornamental garden with nine pillars representing the muses. The setting so manicured in its topiary, it feels as if it must hide something, even now, a little darker, which of course so many places do when the sun falls over the horizon and we turn to drink, or find our minds a little altered. The brig in its horror-filled story seems to symbolise the fine line alcohol takes us to between glory and disaster. As Burns wrote in Tam O'Shanter's final lines, no, why this tale as truth shall read, ilk man and mother's son take heed. Whene'er to drink you are inclined, or cutty sarks run in your mind, think, ye may buy joys o'er dear, remember Tam O'Shanter's mare, by Vicky Allen. Last Curtain Call, Pavilion Theatre boss, hits out as Glasgow venues miss out on £3 million lifeline virus cash, by Martin Williams. A row has blown up over Glasgow missing out on millions in Scottish Government coronavirus lockdown support for performing arts venues without any call for applications. Ministers announced £3 million in funding was going to just three charities, leading to questions over how they were singled out. Aberdeen Performing Arts, which runs His Majesty's Theatre, Aberdeen Music Hall and The Lemon Tree, is to receive £1.4 million in new funds. Capital Theatres, which operates the Festival Theatre, the King's Theatre and the Studio in Edinburgh, will receive £800,000. And Edencourt Highlands, Scotland's largest single-site arts venue in Inverness, will receive £800,000. It means that Scottish ministers will have ploughed £2.38 million of COVID-19 support money into Aberdeen Performing Arts, £2.07 million for Edencourt Highlands and £1.55 million for Capital Theatres. The decision has shocked Ian Gordon, general manager of the Pavilion Theatre in Glasgow, which, outside of furlough support, has received £150,000, and he is lodging a complaint with ministers saying the beneficiaries contribute nothing to the UK economy through paying corporation tax. He believes theatres should have been able to apply for the tranche of money and it should have been shared more equally. The whole thing stinks, he said. Why can't anyone apply for this fund? When you look at the pavilion in the past 10 years, we have paid half a million pounds into corporation tax. And these other businesses are run as charities, so they don't pay corporation tax. How can they be singled out with figures like that? And there is no Glasgow venues in that payout. It's all East Scotland. It just isn't right. Details of the funding emerged on January the 17th, with Culture Secretary Fiona Hislop saying it would help to secure the future of three of Scotland's important independent performing arts charities, protecting jobs and addressing some of the financial pressures they're facing. She said these venues all receive UK and international touring work of major scale, make a significant contribution to the economy and support a network of arts organisations 
artists and creators at the heart of our cities and regions. Edencourt Chief Executive James Mackenzie Blackman said the pandemic has had a devastating impact on the venue and that the funding was a lifeline. He said that without the confirmation of this support, it would have been my corporate duty to recommend to Edencourt's board of directors that they initiate in February a programme of mass redundancies in order to protect the business from facing insolvency in the summer. He said Eden Court had used previous emergency funding to hire 34 different artists and contractors to make work, as well as honour contracts to another 15 artists for cancelled projects. Jane Spears, Chief Executive of Aberdeen Performing Arts, said that the funding will go a long way towards helping us survive, thrive and play our part in the cultural and economic recovery of the North East. The organisation was said to have had a high reliance on earned income and to date has been faced with more than 500 show cancellations stretching into 2022 due to the pandemic. Capital Theatres is said to have faced a double jeopardy situation because it has saved funds earmarked for a major refurbishment and upgrade of the King's Theatre but was forced to spend that on sustaining itself through the pandemic. Fiona Gibson, the chief executive at Capital Theatres, said they had lost over 90% of their turnover as a result of the pandemic, which she described as a truly staggering experience. Mr Gordon, who's already lodged objections with Scottish Government's art body, Creative Scotland, which is delivering the new money, has questioned why the three charities were singled out for such support. He wrote, It was extremely disappointing to see that there are no Glasgow theatres slash venues that are deemed as elite theatres in Scotland, or is there further venue funding still to be announced? A few of Glasgow theatres do the same shows as the other three elite Scottish theatres, and Glasgow has some of the biggest and busiest and successful venues slash theatres in Scotland. It really is obscene that given the number of other businesses around all these theatres, all the freelancers, actors, technicians, musicians who we all rely on to keep theatres alive and who've had very little, and in lots of cases nothing, that we continue to throw money at theatres who give back very little in return. Given that Glasgow is Scotland's biggest city with a large number of similar venues, why is there no Glasgow venue or theatre included in this additional funding? He is also asking if there was an audit of the companies carried out to see if they had used all of the previous funding that they've received. An Aberdeen Performing Arts spokesman said this new funding recognises the unique scale of the challenge facing large-scale theatres and concert halls, the significance of culture to the region's economic future and the vital role Aberdeen Performing Arts plays in civic, cultural and community life. We can't wait to welcome everyone back when it's safe to do so. A Scottish Government spokesman said, We do not underestimate the devastating impact this pandemic has had on Scotland's cultural sector, particularly for organisations which rely on audiences and live performances. The recent funding announced for Aberdeen Performing Arts, Edencourt Highlands, cultural anchors for the North East and Highlands, as well as Capital Theatres, will help support three charitable organisations recognising the scale of UK and international theatre they host. To date, we have allocated more than £125 of additional funding for cultural and heritage since the start of the pandemic. This includes the £12.5 Performing Arts Venue Relief Fund and £15 Culture Organisations and Venues Recovery Fund, which have supported theatres and other performing arts venues across Scotland. 
This has included funding to Glasgow theatres, including the Pavilion Theatre, the Tron Theatre, Citizens Theatre and International Entertainment Holdings Ambassador Theatre Group, which operates the Theatre Royal and King's Theatre in Glasgow. We will continue to work with and listen to the needs of this sector. Robert Burns, Brigadoon and its Supernatural Tales by Vicky Allen The 15th century cobblestone bridge crossing River Dune at Alloway looks idyllic and picturesque by day and in most tourist photographs or even on our crisp £5 notes. But of course it has another darker and more dramatic life in the imagination of Scots and those the world over who have enjoyed our bard's tale of Tam O'Shanter. It is an icon of the supernatural and local superstition, a beguiling reminder of the weird and uncanny. In our mind's darkness, witches tear towards it. A grey mare pounds, tail flying in the wind and rain. Nan leaps to clutch it. This is the place, famously, to which the drunken Tam fled on his mare Maggie, pursued by this hellish horde, knowing that a running stream they dare not cross. For Robert Burns' great narrative poem wasn't purely invented. It was based upon local lore and story recorded in a letter to his friend, the art critic and antiquary Captain Francis Gross. Those were Burns' notes in the epistle, three witch stories associated with the Alloway Kirk. Amongst these authentic tales was that of a Carrick farmer who saw a witch's dance in the haunted Kirk and had to flee for his life with witches and warlocks at his horse's tail. I need not mention, writes Burns, the universally known fact that no diabolical power can pursue you beyond the middle of a running stream. Lucky it was for the poor farmer that the river Dune was so near, for notwithstanding the speed of his horse, which was a good one, against he reached the middle of the arch of the bridge and consequently the middle of the stream, the pursuing vengeful hags were so close at his heels that one of them actually sprung to seize him. By day, Brigadoon is almost too picturesque and neat. Just above the brig, an ornamental garden with nine pillars representing the muses. The setting so manicured in its topiary, it feels as if it must hide something, even now a little darker. Which, of course, so many places do when the sun falls over the horizon and we turn to drink or find our minds altered a little. The brig and its horror-filled story seem to symbolise the fine line alcohol takes us to between glory and disaster. As Burns wrote in Tamashanter's final lines, Know why this tale of truth shall read, Ilk man and mother's son take heed, Whene'er to drink you are inclined, Or cutty sarks run in your mind, Think you may buy joys or dear, Remember Tamashanter's mare. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.